Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you will uh, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning. That's our second look at this section. 2 Peter 5, 1 through 11. Excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. Let me read these verses to you. He says in verse 5, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Second Peter is a short letter. You've noticed that, just three chapters. And the main theme is going to be, or is, we're going, to, we're going to see, I mean, in chapter two, the main theme, which is the false teachers that have either come on the scene or about to come on the scene. And in light of that, and in preparation for that, Peter wants the believers to whom he's writing to, he wants them to be prepared. He wants them to be confirmed and strengthened in their understanding of their salvation. That's chapter one. The end of chapter one, he wants them to be strengthened in their understanding of God's word and the importance of God's word. And then in chapter three, he was going to talk more about understanding sanctification, the process of growing in Christ. So it's interesting, he sandwiches this whole theme of false teachers all in chapter two, and he surrounds it by these two doctrines, or these three three doctrines, the doctrine of salvation, sanctification, and the Bible, the truthfulness of the Bible. It's interesting, too, that we come to a section here in uh, chapter 5 through 11, where we have just seen where, in verses 3 through 4, Peter has focused on everything that God has done for us in our salvation, and now he comes to chapter Uh, into verse 5 through 11, he comes now to a section where he tells us what our part should be. He has just gotten through telling us that we are complete in Christ. He's just got through telling us that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have the power and we have the word, the promises of God's word. He says you have everything. And then all of a sudden he gets to chapter 5 and then he says, now add this. It's almost counterintuitive to verses three and four to make the statement like, add this. How do you add to everything? He has just said, you have everything. And now he's saying, now you add this. It's interesting. Uh, It's an interesting paradox 
but it just reminds us that this is how we are complete in Christ, and yet He wants us now to live out that completion. He wants us to live out that power and that strength and those promises that is provided for us. It's not that we just get saved to be passive. He didn't save us to be passive and just to stand still. He saved us that we might grow, that we might mature in our faith. That's our purpose, to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. After reading verses 3 and 4 and hearing about all that we have in Christ, you would think he would just step back and say, I'll just let go and let God. And no, he says, no, you need to add these things. You need to add to your faith these things. There are some people that do teach that. There are some people that say, just let go and let God. There are some people that would say this is legalistic to stand up and tell people to add anything to what God has already done. But that's not how God designed it. And we see that is so evident here in our passage in 2 Peter. That God did not just save us to be passive. He did not save us to let go and to let God. Um, you know, sometimes you might pray a prayer and say, God, help me, or God, help me in my self-control. God, take away my lack of self-control. Make me a person who has more control in my life. And you might sit back and say, okay, God, you do that. And God would just answer you from this word by saying, no, I don't do it that way. I've saved you. I've given you the power and the promises that you can work out your salvation. You didn't work for your standing with me. You added nothing to your position with me. The only thing you brought to the table when I saved you was your sin. But now that I have saved you, but now that you've been saved, he's saying, work out your salvation. You, you believe my promises. You trust in my power to deal with your self-control. You stay away from those places that bring temptation into your life. You do certain things. It's not so that you can be made right with God. You're already right with God. It's just so that you can walk with God in a manner that pleases Verse 5, you notice, take full, um, now for this very reason also, that's what he's saying. Look at your backpack. Look at the resources that you have, everything that God has done, and apply all diligence, verse 5 says. Or make every effort if you have the ESV. And there, so there's a place for human effort in our sanctification. And that's important. There's a place for, uh, it's called progressive sanctification. Um, and we use the term progressive uh, before the word sanctification because there is a sanctification that God does when he saves us. He sanctifies us. He sets us apart. That's a positional truth right there. We're set apart. But now we're living out that set-apartness by progressive sanctification. We are continually moving in a direction of becoming more like Christ. We will never reach it in this life. We will never reach perfection in this life. But we keep striving. We keep enduring. We keep pressing on, as, as uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. So Peter says, make every effort, 
And then he lists these qualities that you're to make every effort to pursue. And I just want to take some time to go through these a little bit. Uh, first off, just repeating what I said last week, these are not activities. Uh, activities are good, but activities without these qualities are not good. Uh, our activities and, and, and things we do in ministry, we need to make sure we have this character or it's just a bunch of activity. We need to make sure that our activities spring from the character qualities he lists here. He doesn't say, the first thing I want you to do is to go on the mission field or go to seminary or, or uh, go to a Bible study or go to his church or anything. He doesn't say that. Those are things we should do, but they're not things we should do without the character that he lists for us here in these verses. Our, our ministry should flow out of this character, and that is what he is saying to us. He's saying you add to your faith. You notice that in verse 5. Faith is given to you. You don't add faith to your life. That is something that's given to you. But to that faith, he lists these qualities. The first one he lists is moral excellence. Moral excellence. My translation says that. Yours may say virtue. It's the same thing. But out of your faith comes aret, uh, virtue. Out of your faith comes uh, this ability. The word means to f- perform, uh, it used to mean in Greek, classical Greek, uh, heroic deeds. Then it came to mean uh, someone who stands out as excellent. And uh, heroism is a way it was used at one time as well. Uh, you would say a singer was a ret if they were a good singer. Uh, excellent. Uh, it would be something that you would want to add to your faith in terms of Christ's likeness. That's excellence. Christ was the model of that, of excellence. We want to pursue Christ's likeness. We want to pursue being like Christ. Paul says, I press on to the mark of the high calling of Christ. I press on toward Christ. I press on for moral excellence or Christ-likeness. I just say it's another word for Christ-likeness. That is to be our pursuit. What am I doing here? Will you save me, God? What do you want me to do? You want me to pursue Christ-likeness. That's what he's saying. I want you to pursue being like Jesus Christ. The second one he says you want to add to your excellence is the word he uses, knowledge. This is not the compound form of the word like we saw before, epigenosis. This is, this is just the practical, simple form, practical knowledge, discernment. I want you to have discernment. I want you to know some things. I want you to know. The only way you're going to know what Christ's likeness looks like is by having the knowledge of God's word. It's, it's, it's laid out for us. He's given us the instruction we need to become like Christ. It's practical knowledge in the, in the sense it's, it's how to live. It's spiritual insight. It's uh, being illuminated by God's word type of knowledge. Uh, the false knowledge, the, the cure to false knowledge is not less knowledge, but it's a knowledge that's characterized by insight. It's an insightful knowledge. Um, and that's what I look for when I go to God's word. God, give me insight. Give me wisdom. I don't want to lean on the world's thinking. I don't want to lean on my own understanding. Um, Pursuing God's word. So that's the second thing. Uh, Out of this excellence comes this pursuit of knowledge or this pursuit of the word of God. The third one he lists there is self-control. 
From knowledge, he goes to self-control. In verse 6, the word means to hold yourself in. Uh, it was used in athletics in Peter's day. The athlete would discipline himself. He, he was uh, self-disciplined. Um, they would beat their bodies into submission. They would uh, have this inner power. That's what the word actually means, this inner power to control one's desires and cravings. That's self-control. It uh, results from applied knowledge. You have knowledge and you apply that knowledge in self-control. Controlling the passions and like a, somebody sitting in a car uh, with a seatbelt on, they're being held in. That's the same idea. I'm being held in. If the car wrecks, I'm still in place. It holds me in place. It's the idea of holding you in, holding you in place. See, the false teachers were opposite of this. Look in verse 18 of chapter 2. Verse 18 of chapter 2. These false teachers, this whole chapter is about these false teachers and prophets. It says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. The one of the teachings of the false teachers was that it didn't matter how you live. You didn't need self-control. Basically, they preached that you could do whatever the flesh desired. You could fulfill the desires of the flesh. You could live out the cravings of the flesh. Um, they, they just gave it license to indulge the flesh. We'll see that later, but um, they followed their own lust. And Peter goes on to say that any, any uh, theology that separates faith from your conduct is a heresy. Faith and conduct is biblical. To say you have faith is reflected in conduct. And part of that is self-control. It doesn't mean we're going to master any of these things perfectly. It just means that these are things I am to pursue. These are things I want, Peter's going to say later, to see increasing in my life. These are things that the Spirit of God, by this gift of faith, has given me a desire for, as I said last week, that I want to look like this. Um... I don't want my desires to control me. I want to control my desires. I think I've heard somebody say this. I think it makes a lot of sense. Just start saying no to yourself more often. That's good practice. Uh, it's not that everything you want to do is sinful, but sometimes you have a desire to do something. You just say, no, I'm not going to do that. As much as I want to do it, I'm not going to do it. Just to show myself I can say no to me. You know, just, just practicing saying no. We say yes way too often. That's our problem many times. Deny yourself, the idea. Take up your cross, deny yourself. Deny yourself and take up your cross. The Christian life starts that way. And then number four, the fourth quality he lists here is patience or endurance. Uh, you could interpret it either way, patience or endurance, perseverance possibly as well. But it's the idea of not giving up, uh, Trials or difficulties come along and you're still standing. Uh, it's, it's when a person faces these headwinds, he doesn't get blown away. It's that idea. Uh, it's spiritual staying power. One commentator used that. A spiritual staying power that people would even go to their death for. for. Um, 
It's, it's the quality that keeps you on your feet. Uh, it's kind of like self-control under pressure. I'm always reminded of John chapter 8 when people were believing in Jesus. Uh, and Jesus says, those who continue are my true disciples. A lot of people would express belief. A lot of people in that context would see miracles and they would believe because of what the miracles they saw, but they weren't there the next day. You've seen conversions like that, right? People don't continue. One of the greatest evidences that you're a Christian is that you continue. It's quality of perseverance is added to faith. And godliness, number five, the fifth one. Uh, this is an this is idea of practical awareness of, of God uh, in every area of your life. Godliness, uh, it's true worship of God, and, but worship is in every area of my life. A God consciousness in every area of my life. I don't just compartmentalize it. I don't just say it's just for Sunday or it's just for church. I say that it goes into every area of my life. I want it to reflect godliness, godlikeness. I want to be like God. I want to be loyal to God, focused on God. It's uh, how David in Psalm 16 says, I set the Lord always before me. I mean, that's how you had to interpret life through God, God's eyes. I, I want to see things and circumstances and relationships with people and conflicts with people and just situations in the world and anything that's going on. I want to see it through God's eyes, not through my own. That's godliness. That's a God consciousness. Is what does God think about this? What does God, what does God say about this? What is God's opinion on this? That's godliness. Brotherly kindness, he lists that one as well. Brotherly kindness is the word we get Philadelphia from, that kind of love, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's the idea of loving other Christians, brotherly. It's the idea of, of um, sacrificing for others. Um, it's at the heart of godliness. Um, it's uh, reverencing God by loving each other. That would be how that flows out of godliness. Uh, I, I love each other. I say I love God. Then First John says, if you love God, then you're to love your brother. If you don't love your brother, then you're a liar. Because, those who because God is love. And to reflect God to others is to love them, to love your brother. People who are born of God love others who are born of God. This is brotherly kindness. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. You, they go together. They just go together. You can't separate those two. So love God, love your neighbor, and love one another. The whole first half of the Ten Commandments, how to love God. No idols, keep the Sabbath, don't take his name in vain. And then you have the second half, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, don't commit adultery. So the, the whole Ten Commandments is love of God, love of others, expresses the two greatest commandments. A lot of people want to say they love God, but they don't like people. Well, that's just not, that's a contradiction. That's a contradiction. It doesn't mean everybody's your best friend, but it certainly doesn't mean 
you don't like or love. And he goes on to say, even use the word love. And number seven, the seventh virtue he lists there is love. Love, um, love is, is not an emotion, but it's an act of the will. And this goes to unbelievers as well. Uh, just a general sacrificial love to everyone. And, and I think this spreads it out beyond the church, but even to unbelievers, that I'm going to love them both in the church and both outside. Sacrificial love in marriage, um, where you seek the best for somebody else. Sometimes the world interprets what we say to them about moral issues as unloving, but really we say the things we say, one, because God says them, but secondly, because we love them. We take firm stands on moral issues that God takes firm stands on. And when we say them to the world, they call that hate speech. We say, no, that's love speech right from God, a God who is trying to stir you up and bring you to repentance because he loves you. So it's the doing the best for somebody else. Everybody does not need to be flattered. Everybody does not need to be told everything is okay when it's not. Sometimes the truth divides and the truth separates and the truth causes pain, but the truth is love. It would be unloving not to be truthful. So I just mention all of these because these are qualities, you've seen them before, uh, and there's enough here to keep us occupied for the rest of our lives, right? Is this, this is a, a list of qualities that uh, faith is the foundation of all of them. I, I don't, if you don't have faith, you can't do these. If you don't have faith, the, it's not you've got to uh, try and do these yourself. No, these, are, these come out of faith. These, these, are, um, these are qualities that I'm dependent on God to produce in me. I don't just go and say, I'm going to make myself like this. I, I, I have a part. That's the whole point of this section here. But the, it's also true that the only reason I can do them is because God is what work in me. Philippians chapter 2. I don't rely on myself to do them. And I certainly don't think that by doing them, that's what bases my entrance into heaven. You don't want to think like that either. I must do all of these things or I won't go to heaven. That's not what this is teaching. This is teaching that these are the evidences of faith. These are the evidences of saving faith. If saving faith is in me, God would not ask me to do something I could not do. That he's not given me the power and the promises, verses 3 and 4, to do. I have the resources to do them. And so these are qualities that progressive sanctification, things I'm to do if I have Christ. And then he comes to verses 8 and 9. And this is interesting. In verses 8 and 9, it's kind of like he's going to say this. What are you going to do about it? If these are the qualities that you're to add to your faith because you have all this power in you as a Christian, you've got the resources to do that, you've got the command to do it, what are you going to do about it? Verse 8, 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the goal of these qualities, as I told you last week, is that we will be fruitful people and we will uh, be useful people. But he's saying something here that I think is interesting. Useless means out of work. Uh, Useless means idle or inactive. In uh, Titus, the word is used, idle bellies. They just don't do anything useful. James 2.20, it's translated as dead. Faith without works is useless or dead. If you pursue these qualities, he is saying, you won't be inactive, inoperative, or useless. And then he adds the word, and I think the word dead is there in terms of effectiveness. Dead faith is not effective faith. It doesn't affect anything. It doesn't save you. So dead in terms of effectiveness. You're, you're not useful. You're not effective. And you're not, a, and he uses the, and then he adds the word nor unfruitful. You see that in verse 8? Nor unfruitful. That means unproductive. It's used usually referring to a tree, a tree that doesn't produce fruit. You would expect your tree, fruit tree to have some kind of fruit sometime. Jude 12 calls the false teachers autumn trees without fruit. Ephesians 5.11, the unfruitful deeds of darkness. So he's saying... If our lives do not manifest these virtues, these seven virtues I just defined for you, if our life does not manifest these virtues, we are going to be useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. If they are increasing, he says, you are not useless and unfruitful. You're increasingly fruitful. When he says the word in the knowledge of Christ, you know he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to believers. And he's, he's saying, you possess the true knowledge about Christ, not the false knowledge. You're a real believer. You have the capacity to produce these qualities. They're inherent in your new nature. You've been blessed with all the spiritual blessings. And you have all the things that pertain to life and godliness. You've got the, as Warfield said, you've got the germ in you, this germ seed in you, for all of these qualities, a true genuine Christian who sees these, on, sees these qualities increasing is not going to live a useless and unproductive life. He said, this is how you're useful and productive. That's, that's your choice. Are you, are you going to be one who, who possesses these qualities? That's the first choice. Are you going to be one who possesses, the first, possesses these qualities? so that you might be fruitful and useful. And then he comes to verse 9, and here's the other choice. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. The qualities are the same qualities, the seven qualities. If you are one who lacks these qualities, he says here, 
that you are blind and, and you don't see them increasing. He says, then you are blind and short-sighted. You could almost just say blind being short-sighted is one way of saying it. Blind being short-sighted. Uh, the word is nearsighted. Those are, they're like synonyms, actually. In other words, you can't see far enough to discern your spiritual condition. And I'll tell you why I say that in just a moment. But that's what he's saying. You cannot even discern your own spiritual condition. If a person has these, he's useful and fruitful, back at verse 8, and he will be able to identify his spiritual condition. That person in verse 8, option 1, verse 8, is not blind and short-sighted. Verse 9, the one who lacks those qualities is blind and short-sighted, meaning they cannot see their spiritual condition. Because you know what? That person in verse 9 who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, cannot see God working in their life. He cannot identify his spiritual condition because he doesn't see God working in his life. It is possible to be a Christian like this. And I say that because he goes on to say, the one who lacks these virtues, these qualities, blind and short-sighted, has forgotten his purification from his former sins. That's why I say he doesn't... Let me go on, you know, explain that in just a moment. But purification means cleansing. So he has forgotten that he was cleansed. He has forgotten that he was saved from his former sins, his old sinful life. He has forgotten what he was saved from. He has forgotten because he doesn't see increase of these virtues in his life. He doesn't have evidences of salvation. He doesn't have evidences of salvation because he sees no moral virtue increasing in his life. And therefore, he lacks assurance of his salvation. I just say to you, that is a big problem in the church today. Lack of assurance of salvation. Now, there are many reasons for it, but this is certainly one of them where you don't see the evidences of it. And therefore, you become blind and short-sighted. You can't see far enough to even know what your spiritual condition is. You don't know if you really belong to Christ or not. Your, your vision gets so clouded. You don't know if you're still a Christian anymore. You see yourself doing the very things you used to do, and you're wondering, was I ever really saved? And you walk around guilty, feeling guilty, you walk around not knowing for sure, hoping. See what he's saying here? It dims your vision of your spiritual condition. You might say, well, I can remember walking that aisle. I can remember praying that prayer. You might remember those things, but you still just don't know. You have to reduce it to an event because you have nothing else. You, you recall the activity, but you have no confidence of your salvation. And folks, that makes you useless and ineffective. You can't share your faith with anyone else because you don't even know if you have it. You cannot minister because you feel like a hypocrite. You cannot 
have joy in worship because you don't know where you stand with God. You lack the confidence. When you don't have confidence, you're not very fruitful and you're not useful. And this, like I said, can just go back into repeating former sins. You've forgotten. You forgot. You forgot what this was all about. To Jesus came to be the Savior. He came to save us from our sins. You've forgotten that. <laughs> because now you're right back in them. And I'm not saying you are not a Christian. I'm just simply saying there is certainly no evidence that you are. You may be, but you don't know it. And you lack confidence. You lack confidence. And you say, Rod, why do you say this is talking about that? Verse 10, look at it. Therefore, he ties it all together. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain. Middle voice. Middle voice, this is important. Middle voice, make certain for yourself. Make certain for yourself about his calling and choosing you. You don't have to convince God. God knows. He knows if you're in his kingdom or not. You're not doing this to prove something to God. It's you're doing it for yourself so that you, you will have confidence and certainty. See the word? Certainty about his calling and choosing you. So you want to avoid verse 9, lacking these qualities. You want to instead pursue these qualities. You want to possess them and let them be yours in increasing so that you can be certain about his calling and choosing you. I think it's an awful fear an awful fear to have to not know if you're really saved. I think grief and despair and some people, and, and I, like I said, I don't think this is the only reason. I will share some other thoughts on that in a little bit if I have time, but this is certainly one reason I don't have enough evidence to convict me of being a Christian. I've heard people say, that's it. Calling and choosing are synonyms. The calling is the sovereign command and the, so, the sovereign choosing. He sovereignly calls. He sovereignly chooses. Calling is that in-time event that took place when he called you out of darkness. He called you to salvation. He opened your eyes and brought you to faith in Christ. Choosing eternity past. He says, you make sure that you're a Christian. Making sure to yourself. You need assurance. This is not eternal security I'm talking about. This is totally different. Eternal security is something that's part of the perseverance of the saints, that is part of something that God enables us to continue doing throughout our lives. This is you having the subjective assurance you see, there are two ways to know whether you're saved or not. One is the objective. 
Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He paid the penalty for my sins. He made possible access into the presence of God by taking my sin out of the way. He transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Do you believe that? That's objective. That's an objective truth. Do you believe that? But secondly, subjective, do I see Verses 5, 6, and 7, do I see the evidences of that happening? That's fruit. That's like, that's like inspecting yourself. People don't like that term, fruit inspection, but that's what you're doing. Do I see the evidences of that? That's what Peter is building towards. He wants you in the face of these false teachers not to be wobbly. He doesn't want you to be, to be staggering, stumble, the word he uses here. He wants you to know. He wants you to know. He says, he uses the, the word practice. See the word practice in verse 10? As long as you practice these things, present active participle. When you see practice, it's talking about the pattern. It's not talking about a one-time thing. It's talking about a pattern of, of daily conduct. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean you don't fail, have to get back up lots of times. It doesn't mean that. But it says as long as you're practicing and this is the pattern of your daily conduct, you will never stumble. And this simply means you don't keep falling into doubt. It keeps, means you don't keep staggering. It, it doesn't mean stumbling in the old in the ultimate sense, it just means you will have confidence. You will have confidence. You will have assurance. Because you will look at your life and say, the only explanation for these things in my life is God because I know I didn't put them there. Sometimes you need to do that. Say, hey, I'm struggling with doubt. Then I look at, I just say, let me do a little inventory here. Have I changed? Am I the same man I was? As I've seen something happen to me that I know I did not do myself. These are the evidences of knowing that give me certainty. I may be having a bad week, but I know what I know what I know. I've seen him do it. So visible fruit. For in this way, look at verse 11, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Once again, he's not saying, do these seven virtues and you'll get into the kingdom. That is not what he is saying. We do the seven virtues that, and I just said seven, it's probably more things than that. It's just the ones he listed there. But these virtues are just evidences that I belong to Him, and someday I'll receive an abundant reward. I'm not saying I earned my way there, but it just makes an abundant reception into heaven, is all He's saying. What I've been living here on earth, I will live in perfectly in heaven. What I pursued here on earth, I will realize in perfection in heaven. Yeah, you can be a, one who does not. You can be one who goes with 
verse 9 and decides you want to lack these qualities, then you may go to heaven. Maybe a believer. Go to heaven. But it will not be abundant like this. I believe this verse clearly teaches level of rewards in heaven. I'm not going to get into all that this morning, but I think it's true. I think you see that in 1 Corinthians. You see that here as well. As I diligently supply the virtues of the Christian life and character in my life, God will continue to increase it as He receives me into His eternal kingdom. So when someone comes up to you and says, I I lack assurance, uh, it's not enough, folks. It's not enough to say to them, well, did you ever walk an aisle or give you, did you ever go give your heart to Jesus like some kind of event? It's not enough. They're not, one, I don't think they're going to believe you because they look at their life and they see, I can't be a Christian. I can't be a Christian and live like this. I've, I've tried to convince people that. I've heard them pray a prayer. And I said, there you are, you're in. Because that's the way I was taught early on. Just pray that prayer and you're in. And I say, you're a Christian. And I was basing that on some prayer. I was not basing it on the fact whether Jesus really saved him or not, because I didn't know. And you don't either. You don't either. You don't know if Jesus really saved them when they prayed that prayer or not. He may have. But it's only when you begin to see the evidences of it. And only then can you begin to teach them about certainty of knowing that their calling and election are sure. It's hard. It's hard. And I feel for some people have struggles with this issue of assurance. And there may be people here this morning that do. It's a hard issue. I understand. Uh, John MacArthur has written a really good little booklet. And I will encourage you to his website because uh, it's free there. It's called The Believer's Assurance. I just want to share a few things with that in closing. Because there are some incorrect assumptions about salvation, he says. He says there are some people who doubt their salvation and should doubt it. <laughs> he says, quotes the little song, the old slave spiritual put it simply, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Some people think all is well with God and it really isn't. Some people lack assurance in that category and you just need to hear the gospel and say, hey, is this really what you're believing and trusting in. So some people lack assurance and they should lack it because they're not saved. Then he goes on to just address people, because what he says, he says there's a lot of people that are going to stand before Christ one day and he's going to say, I never knew you. And that haunts, that haunts anybody. That should haunt you and that haunts me as a pastor. Because there are some people that think they're going there and they're not, and they should not have assurance. Sometimes we want to give them assurance, and we shouldn't. Because the last thing I want to contribute to is them standing before Christ one day and hearing those awful words, I never knew you. But then he lists some other things. Let me be quick here. Um, and you can find this on his, these are on his website. This is uh, benefit, the, the Believer's Assurance. I'm just highlighting a couple things. He says some people can lack assurance because they don't see results in their service. How do I, I know I'm a Christian, but I, I, and I've been transformed. They would say, I look at my life, I don't see any impact. 
I try to do things to serve the Lord, but I don't see much results from that. They get discouraged and wonder. That happens. Golly, I've felt that. (laughs) Some people, some people, because lack assurance, because of disobedience, you fail to obey the word of God and you get caught up into sins and, and you wonder if you're really truly a believer. Some people lack assurance because they're inconsistent. They just have too many highs and too many lows. They never feel like they're there. Today I had a great time in worship, and tomorrow I'm right back in the pit, right? And you wonder, with this inconsistency in your attractions and desires, you wonder, am I really saved? Some people, Satan wants us to doubt. Some people are just bombarded with doubts. Some people have a very sensitive conscience, more sensitive maybe than others. They get very introspective and get fearful. They tend to be more doubtful and they look at their lives and they begin to see, uh, become so introspective. They, don't, they see so much they don't like in their lives that their conscience begins to pound on them and they walk around feeling guilty all the time. These are real. I've heard these things. I've felt some of these things. So I know this is a struggle we go through. Trials. Sometimes we go through a trial and we can start to think, does God really love me? How could I be going through this and how can there be a God? How can any of this be true if this happened to me? Some people, and this will be the last one, but some people will say, I don't remember the day I was saved. And because I can't pinpoint the day I was saved, therefore I lack assurance. This happens a lot with people that grow up in a church environment. Well, he's always been part of my life. I've always believed in him. I can't remember a time when I did not. I, that's, I don't think you need to look at a past event for that, by the way. Don't look at a past event when you made some decision. The point is, is what's the present pattern of my life? What's going on in my life right now? That's the issue there, I think, more than anything else. Don't, don't worry about the date or the time. That's not it. What's happening right now? Focus on the lifestyle instead. I think that's the message of First Peter, Second Peter to us this morning. Just focus on the lifestyle that I can have confirmation from that desire to pursue these things. Pray, God, by your grace, I want to make my calling and election sure. Help me to pursue these things, and may you, can, may you develop these things in me as I cooperate with you in my sanctification. If you have more questions about assurance of salvation on a personal level, hey, I gladly talk to you. Any of the pastors will gladly talk about that more because I know that's, I don't want to minimize what people go through with that because it's hard. It's very hard for some people, for some of you. It's been hard for me in different ways in the past. So I understand that. Our feelings get in there and all that. I get that. And doubts and all those things. But one of the greatest evidences we have is what Peter's saying here. Don't be lacking in these things. Pursue these things. Add these things.
by God's grace. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. And thank you, God, for this time we've had together in it this, in it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.